Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on scientific planes of understanding, mm. <laughs> and uh, we'll be focusing on biochemistry and neuroscience as well as other fields of science, but um, mainly biochem and neuroscience because those are our backgrounds, mm -hmm. and we just thought it would be really interesting to explore how these different topics are researched and how the way we think about the topics end up influencing the type of types of experiments we conduct and then also like the plane of understanding of this topic. To explain a little bit what I mean by plane is that with, for example, biochemistry, I always see it as like a funnel. So you'll start off really big and broad, like you'll have the organism and then you go smaller to the organ and then tissue, cell, and then the protein and the molecule and then the atoms and then the chemical laws that cause it to behave and have these interactions with each other. And then from there, we can understand the molecular interactions. Whereas with neuroscience, the perspective... It's a bit more <laughs> complex than that. It is. <laughs> And I hadn't, I always thought that biochemistry was really complex. And then now that I'm researching neuroscience, I find bio biochemistry really like simple and beautiful in, in that it's so like, it's like a funnel. As long as you can like understand the biochemical interactions or like the chemical laws and the structure function relationship, you can kind of almost get everywhere you want to go. And I hadn't really thought much about this in terms of neuroscience until Carolina brought this to my attention as somebody who came from a biochemistry background, as I came from a neuroscience background, I felt like I was kind of used to studying everything in parallel. So like we would study anatomy in parallel with biochemistry, in parallel with neuropharmacology, as well as basic neuroscience, as well as psychology, as mm -hmm. well as philosophy. And you kind of just like, yeah, you have all these different perspectives and I guess you combine it in your own head. But it was only when we when we started discussing the link between behavior and all the way down to the level of ion channel <laughs> behavior <Yeah. laughs> that we, we realized this challenge in neuroscience of an inability to, like you explained, funnel down. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like the planes, rather than just like being a zoomed in version of each other, of one another kind of are not always reducible in that way. Yeah, and uh, one thing that I, I found really challenging in neuroscience, like I think the greatest challenge for me going from biochemistry to neuroscience, of, of course, like there comes the normal challenge of being caught up with all of the literature and the foundations and, and the actual topic, but it was also very much about the way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. I was... I was so like trained to think about science in this very specific way. And then to be able to like look at the anatomy and then look at the functionality and the like synaptic activity happening and like put those two together and like needing to form this image and then again like you said relating it to behavior it made me feel like in biochemistry it's you can study it at a 3d plane whereas in neuroscience you feel like there isn't a plane it's just like <laughs> chaos exactly <laughs> yeah beyond the limits of our brain <laughs> yeah 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 so i thought i would like give an example in biochemistry where i feel like this is really clear and so in my course we learned about light harvesting proteins and so chlorophylls and um the way it works is 
in a chlorophyll, you have something called an antenna concept, which is basically the way that the pigment absorbs light. And there's so many different things that go into it, this, such as the structure and the pigment binding, tuning, orientation, and the efficiency of pigments. So I'm going to go over what all of these terms mean in the biochemistry context. So the tuning of spectral properties is about being able to optimize the light wavelength to the type of color that you have in your pigment, whether it's a carotenoid or like a green chlorophyll and that kind of thing. And then the way that the pigments would absorb light would be with light photons that have like a specific diameter. And in order for the uh, pigment to absorb the light, the distance between the parts of the protein would need to be at a really specific optimal distance. In the case of like B850, a type of pigment, it would be 10 angstroms. And in the case of carotenoids, it would be between van der Waals distance. And this, this really fine specificity of distance allowed the photon to get transferred across the protein and not lose its energy, but also the distance wasn't too big that it got quenched. And so I know that this is a really tiny thing, but it's incredible how like specific the biology is. And then this relates to the structure-function relationship. And as I've mentioned in the structure-function episode, you have... Grayel and Groyes chaperones, and these are molecules that basically help the protein fold. And it's due to the fact that it has some hydrophobic areas and some hydrophilic areas that allow proteins to like fit into this structure and like it'll just fold like a glove. And so biochemistry almost feels mechanic and things just kind of fall into place once you understand the structure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you understand the function. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, this just reminded me, the first time we were talking about this, I remember asking, but how does it make sure that it's the right distance away from each other? Mm-hmm. And you were just like, well, evolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just basically trial and error over time until it finds the right distance and then that survives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And another example of the structure-function relationship that I think makes biology quite clear is when looking at Alzheimer's, one of the main candidates for its cause is the accumulation of amyloid beta and how um, this protein can agglomerate, so accumulate, but also misfold. And it's that misfold that causes a lot of the problems. And it has a lot of different types of misfolds, but one of them is called oligomers. And this really specific type of protein is what we think is perforating ion channels and acting as a detergent. And so again, this is another example where, oh, in this variety of structure, we pointed out the one that looks weird. Let's look at that one. And then, oh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it dissolves membranes, you know, yeah. like, so, yeah, from from a biochemistry perspective, I always felt that, oh, as long as I'll understand the structure, I'll understand the function and then like biochemistry will be solved, you know, like <laughs> the problem will yeah. be fixed. And now with neuroscience, like, you know, the structure, you may even know the function, but then like it's you still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this definitely links back very closely to the episode on structure-function relationships we did, mm-hmm. where for any of those who haven't listened to it or need a refresher, mm-hmm. um, we came to the conclusion that there's actually not a link between structure and function that's direct, but it's a triangle mm-hmm. between structure, function, and dynamics within a system, which is something 
we randomly just agreed on yeah in the moment um, but we're I in can't... the process of publishing with nature <laughs> and no, we're kidding <laughs> um, it's just that a little would, theory that we have cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm now starting to believe it more and more and yeah. so in this topic mm-hmm. I think this is the same case in in terms of dynamics being a very important part of neural systems so it is something that's being neural dynamics is something that's being taken into consideration and studied a lot more in fact the neur- new center for neural dynamics by the Allen Institute was just yeah. started but yeah so something I came across and have been thinking about for a while is the concept of emergence, Mm -hmm. uh, which is technically the opposite of reductionism, which we have a whole episode on. Yeah, related to reductionism in art and brain science. Yeah, it was about Mm -hmm. reductionism in art as well as reductionist research methods, Mm -hmm. which basically means the ability to study things at a small level and infer higher level phenomena from it. Yeah. Which is flawed in many ways. (laughs) (laughs) But Um, yeah, the fact that um, in neuroscience, not only you have the biological nature of things, you then also have this component that you mentioned, which is emergence, which we don't, I don't think you see it as commonly in in biochemistry, if at all. I'm I'm at least not aware of any. So yeah, tell us. (laughs) I think emergence sort of forms the basis of something we discussed in yet another episode. (laughs) It's just bringing it all together. Um the hard problem of consciousness Mm -hmm. which is like the fact that as much as we can study the brain we're not really getting at what consciousness is and oh and actually argued in the mind and matter episode for an emergentist point of view which is that consciousness is something that emerges Mm -hmm. yeah emerges from neural dynamics perhaps we don't we don't know yet but yeah just to properly define emergence first Mm -hmm. there's an amazing royal society issue on this whole topic and in one of the leading papers in that issue they defined emergence as when a large number of similar entities interact among each other and with their environment at a low scale unexpected outcomes at higher spatiotemporal scales might spontaneously arise And so it's the idea of a system made up of many small components that are all interacting with each other, as well as the external environment. And then this different property emerges spontaneously at a higher scale. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily the case that you can directly compare or see a relationship between the high, higher scale and the lower scale. And going through this paper made me realize that emergence is a property of many systems, both living and non-living, biological and non-biological, so physical, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something I didn't think about much before because we were only discussing neuroscience and biochemistry, which are both biologically based. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in like physical systems, there are many physical laws that only apply to certain scales yeah yeah and so you need to sort of come up with new laws to understand large-scale phenomena versus small-scale phenomena that's so interesting i definitely know that that's the case in physics like you can't apply the same laws to quantum physics to like object physics (laughs) (laughs) large-scale physics can you tell we're not physicists (laughs) yeah this was a an idea coined by philip anderson who got the nobel prize for 
describing disordered systems. Mm. And he also brought to light this idea that like the concept of, of emergence arises from symmetry breaking, which is that the state of a large system composed of many entities may not follow the same laws that the mm. entities themselves follow. That's so interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. Um, I found it really interesting when they specifically use this example of mass. So mm. mass isn't normally considered an emergent phenomena, but this is a controversial topic, apparently. Mm. And it's interesting because if you consider, for example, like the mass of your backpack, the mass of your backpack is equals to a sum of your backpack plus its contents, whatever. There are many contents inside, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this is just like a linear approximation of the mass of this object. However, if you look at mass at a very small scale, it actually doesn't work like this. It's not a linear summation oh. because if you take into account the interactions or dynamics that are happening <laughs> in, in atomic nuclei, there's their interactions between protons and neutrons that are responsible for a mass defect. Also, at a quantum level, mass is actually a measure of the coupling of particles with the Higgs field. Yeah. So there are multiple definitions of mass, basically. And when you look at it at a large scale, it's a linear approximation. At a smaller scale, mass is not defined by the summation of its entities. Yeah. It's more the dynamics between its entities, which can be non-linear. That's super interesting. And that reminds me a little bit of, um, so, you know, in our macro level, we're used to, you know, if you have a positive and negatively charged something, it, they'll attract to each other. You can, like magnets. Yeah. But if you look, look at the atom, you know, there's a reason why the electron doesn't fall down to the nucleus. It's because the laws of attraction or whatever. Um, <laughs> not, not the pseudo-scientific one. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, are, are different. And it, I guess it is to do with scale and that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so I basically came to the conclusion myself that in neuroscience, because there is this apparent challenge of going across the levels from cells, circuits, to behavior, and everything in between, mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what is the most important that we have to bear in mind is what level should we describe the phenomena? Mm -hmm. Like, it's necessary, though, for as a goal as neuroscientists to bind the levels. So that's the challenge. Yeah, that like, is the challenge. We naturally want to observe some molecular mechanism and say it's responsible for behavior yeah yeah and what you said I think makes a lot of sense in terms of which level should we observe and like think about the different laws that each level has and you know you can study the the neuron communication and firing through voltage and current but we can also look at it through chemistry and 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 the yeah neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters yeah. exactly so even on the cellular level or on the neuronal level, like there's different ways to look at it. And then you go a bit higher up and there's the behavioral level. And yeah, I think it is it is a challenge with neuroscience that I, I was very oblivious to when I first joined. And I, I hadn't realized that it wasn't a linear relationship as I'm, I was used to in biochemistry. Yeah. I think this is slightly related to emergence, but also slightly different, which is epistemology. And so I, that's another okay. phenomena that neuroscience has that, you know, in biochemistry, I don't, you know, proteins aren't really, they don't really have a first person experience, <laughs> you know, but I guess it, it also relates to consciousness, but a first person versus third person ontology and yeah, whether this is emergent or reductionist, um, 
Could you give an example or specify a bit more? Yeah. So it's just related to the fact that with researching the brain, I think it's a bit different because not only, yeah, we are researching it on a biological level and on a behavioral level, but it's also the fact that we have experiences and then we observe other people have their experiences from a third person perspective and there's this epistemological gap that we don't really know whether this whole thing is just you know a vr simulation or whether it's actually real so there's yeah i think with also neuroscience not only there is that behavioral aspect to it which can be really difficult to define already but there's also like a philosophical conundrum not only with yeah consciousness but also epistemology <laughs> that sounds so existential it is <laughs> yeah that is a good point that researching neuroscience can be an existential yeah, experience that's whereas you do have to ignore some parts of exactly it. you can be so like bogged down with like a specific aspect of your research i remember like when i was writing my dissertation i was really struggling to think about okay but what are the implications beyond you know the obvious clinical implications like what are the implications of this research and I was reminded to think about you know the reason we do really research neuroscience and that is our interest in the beyond and the potentially like emergent or reductionist properties that emerge from it but we can it's so easy to grab onto the little molecules and (laughs) no no but this is quantifiable so yeah yeah there is definitely some human perhaps tendency to make things quantifiable. Yeah. And to find patterns. Yeah, I think that's I think that's why, because quantifiable things are easier to find patterns in. Yeah. Or more reliable yeah. patterns at least. Yeah. It's this interesting tension between qualitative and quantitative and wanting to understand like the neural basis and the scientific basis of something that can be innately like subjectivity. How can you study that, you know? This reminds me so much of something we briefly mentioned um, on one of our guest episodes with Alex mm-hmm. on machine learning. Yeah. But towards the end of the episode, some something that was mentioned was data versus phenomena. Yeah. So the idea in science that we're quantifying data, we're analyzing data, everything is data driven, but we're using it to describe phenomena. Mm-hmm. And is that acceptable? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Isn't there a gap between the data and the phenomena? Yeah. Is there another way to describe phenomena that, you know? And Yeah. And is there a gap between the data gathered from an experiment and us like prodding that experiment, which was mentioned with Lisa, that whenever we measure a system, we're influencing the system inherently. Yeah. So it's a challenging topic. (laughs) And um, there's a lot of dynamics happening. Yeah between and within systems yeah and uh, I think it's interesting that I think perhaps people that don't do interdisciplinary research can be very stuck within their their framework of thinking about science not realizing that other science fields can have a completely different way of thinking about it and yeah I would not have been aware of the conundrums that come with neuroscience if I hadn't experienced it yeah but I do love the way that neuroscience think yeah yeah (laughs) because it is this ability to flow between what normally are barriers between subjects yeah like you're yeah like you mentioned about current voltage and then neurotransmitters chemicals proteins which are the receptors and like so you look at for example 
a voltage trace. Mm-hmm. And from that, you infer what is happening within the proteins yeah. of the, the cell. And the ions. And the ions, as well as what's happening in the circuit, like which mm-hmm. parts of the circuit are activated on a higher level. Yeah. And, and then, then how this may influence behavior. And yeah. it's like you actually do have the opportunity to think about all these things. And yeah. it's, like, it's allowed. <laughs> yeah, it's allowed. <laughs> it's not, like, you're not crazy. You just jump. Yeah. But then you do need to learn how to have limits and, like, to know when it's plausible bit, or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, with biochemistry, that's when I realized the, the simplicity of it. And I don't say this in a in a diminishing way. I, I, I say this in a really, like, beautiful and admiring way in that if you if you can you know using all the incredible x-ray crystallography techniques as well as you know spectroscopy and a million other types of technologies that if you can understand the protein structure and then you can almost intuitively learn about the function and i i think that's really beautiful and um that's a simplicity that i'm missing at the moment in neuroscience but um i do love neuroscience for also very different reasons yeah um it also makes it in biochemistry the mechanistic basis makes it more like applicable mm -hmm. because then you can predict like oh from these mechanisms how will the protein fold or whatever yeah yeah and and like if you add this one amino acid because it has these hydrophilic properties it will shift the protein structure in this way making yeah. it behave in that way and it's it's very very mechanistic yeah i do admire that yeah but that's something that is a bit frustrating about neuroscience like we'll, we we don't know enough yet to make it really applicable mm-hmm. yeah i i kind of also sometimes feel like neuroscience is a little bit of a black hole like i don't know i don't know if we'll ever get to a point where like we can understand it from circuit to circuit yeah yeah um the thing that you said about how like the way to think about neuroscience it requires like a, a specific way of thinking about it versus biochemistry for example i feel the same way about people who are naturally good at organic chemistry yeah because i i had i had to take organic chemistry on my undergrad and oh my god it was such a challenge because the way I'm used to thinking about science is completely different from organic chemistry where you learn it with, you know, 2D structures that are fixed on the page and you need to imagine the dynamics happening and all of these chain reactions happening and mech- and, and it's it's too much for me. I couldn't <laughs> do it. It's too chaotic. Yeah. So in a way, although neuroscience is chaotic, at least <laughs> there are no hard laws you need to base your assumption you need to base your predictions on yeah you can just come up with i think neuroscience is very creative in that way definitely and that's what i love about it yeah on that note (laughs) i hope you enjoyed our little exploration of the different scientific planes of understanding and yeah and feel free to check out our website where we have a ton of resources and follow us on twitter and share the episode if you like it 